Let's open the Word of God this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. This is that chapter in the Bible that ends with these words. And no man was able to answer him a word. Amen. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. This is the wisdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. No man was able to answer him a word when he asked a question. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions because of the answers he gave them. We have three groups of heretics facing Jesus in the last half of this chapter. The first are the Pharisees and Herodians. Then we have the Sadducees. And then we have Jesus taking up the Pharisees again, lest they get too confident because he had just put the Sadducees in their place. So we have three groups coming to trick the Lord Jesus Christ. The first group are the Pharisees with the Herodians that want to get him in trouble with the law so they can turn him over to the governor, as we find by reading this passage and comparing it to Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. Matthew chapter 22. Before I get started, let me remind you as to why I'm preaching this subject. Because it's important for us to know what God wants us to do relative to the five spheres of authority. And I hope that I preach all five equally over time. There's five spheres that God's ordained, and he wants us to know how to function as the one with authority, except in this case, none of us have any civil authority, and how to operate under that authority. Right. We've had problems in our past. The older part of the congregation has been well taught, and so this is old to them. But there's another half of this congregation sitting here that are little boys and girls and youth that have not heard it as many times and need to hear it. Plus, we have an audience that reaches far beyond this room, and I have to deal with them on a weekly basis that do not know these things like we know them. Right. Even ministers, they're aghast at hearing our submission to civil government instead of a rebellious spirit. I am well prepared with John 5 when we ended John 4. But the Lord led me between those two chapters to bring this subject to you. John 5 is going to be very interesting as we get into some more events in the Lord's life and his teaching of doctrine in John chapter 5. I understand that some of you know these things. Others don't know them as well. And we want all to know it thoroughly. Amen. This morning, I had two emails. One email was, can we get back to the Lord's life in John chapter 5, rather than this issue of politics, because that person's well-grounded in politics, as I am. The other email was, if you expand the 70 points to 170, it would be very fine with me, because I've learned so much, and the Lord has changed me so much by being part of this church and learning about how to deal with politics. Right. So... I've decided to average those two. No, not really. I'd rather be in John 5. But I want us all established to please God. Amen. If you read Jeremiah 27 last night, did those kings that put their nations under the yoke of Babylon and under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, did they benefit by doing so? Yes, 
they benefited by doing so because it was a de facto government declared by Jeremiah. God no longer wants you obeying the Old Testament nor obeying Moses through it. He wants you obeying Nebuchadnezzar, not only Judah, but the nations surrounding Judah. So Jeremiah had those yokes made up that he gave to the ambassadors, the messengers that were coming to Jerusalem, and said, go back and tell your kings that sent you here. You know, those nations would have all been conspiring with each other. How are they going to defend themselves against the mighty army of Babylon? But the Lord said, submit, and I'll keep you alive. Fight, and I'll destroy you by him, and by pestilence, and by famine. Israel, Judah, didn't obey, and so they lost. Jeremiah did obey, and he was preserved. Right. We learn that there are benefits. If we can, the more we can learn to submit to authority, marriage is better, families are better when children submit to parents, life gets better when we submit to government. And that's what we want to learn and embrace it. We've been taught it. We've been changed. We've been converted, us older members. But there's younger members that need to be taught the same thing. Does this preaching bring glory to God? God calls civil rulers gods. Yes, the powers that be are ordained of God. If we resist the powers, we resist God. Does it bring glory to Christ? He's the king of kings. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. As we heard in our prayer meeting early this morning, he's the one that brings this argument about Caesar. He's the one that said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And one of his commandments is, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Does this bring honor to the Bible? Yes, because the Bible deals with everything to make us perfect in life, including how to get along with various kinds of government. It teaches us what good government is, what bad government is, and how we should submit in both cases. We believe that Psalm 119 and verse 128, which David Jones taught us last Lord's Day, is a theme verse of this church. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That includes this subject. We want to hate every false way and esteem whatever God says about this issue of civil government, embrace it, believe it, obey it, trust it, defend it, promote it, and hate every contrary idea. Matthew chapter 22. This is the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to start at verse 15 and run to verse 22. And if you have little paragraph marks in your Bible, you can see that that's a paragraph. Then beginning at 23, you have a paragraph down through 33 where Jesus silenced the Sadducees with their questions about the resurrection. Then at verse 34, you have a paragraph mark that runs down and deals with the, the commandments. What's the greatest commandment through 40? And then verse 41, Jesus deals with the Pharisees about who Jesus really is. He's the son of David, but why did David call him Lord? We have loved this passage of Scripture for a long time because of the way it ends, with no one wanting to ask Jesus any more questions, and with them being unable to answer his questions. We also like it because... In dealing with the Sadducees, there in that middle section of 23 through 33, Jesus shows his wisdom by arguing from a single, italicized word from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, when God told Moses, I 
am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though Abraham had been dead for several hundred years. A powerful argument, and a powerful argument for the italicized words of our King James Bible, because when you go back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, the word am is in italics, meaning it was interpolated by our translators, but understood in the Hebrew if you knew Hebrew, which we don't. But we love that argument. Then we love another one-word argument when Jesus takes up the Pharisees in verse 41 and says, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said, He's the son of David. Jesus answered, Then why in spirit doth David call him Lord? And he bases his whole argument on the one word, Lord. If David called his son his Lord, then as his Lord, he's much more than just a son. And so Jesus taught the deity of himself to the Pharisees. We like this passage because it's Jesus taking on several heretical groups and silencing them. Now, in verse 15, we have the Pharisees and they get the Herodians. The Herodians were men loyal to Herod. So they're loyal to the appointed government from Rome that was over that part of Palestine. Let me read to you verses 15 through 22. This will be point number 45 on this little list that we have. Hopefully a little helpful to the younger ones to engage them. If you want to write in the four words, here we go. It's a little, this is the hardest one. The first blank is going to be de jure. D-E space in, on one line, J-U-R-E. De jure. The second blank you have is going to have the word or. The third blank you have is de facto. D-E space F-A-C-T-O. And the last blank is authority. It's de jure or de facto authority. And those are two Latin expressions for by law or in law or of law versus in fact. When we say in fact, we're saying de facto from Latin. If we say, you know, things like that regarding fact, the fact of the matter, we're referring to something that's de facto, meaning in actual reality, as opposed to being in writing or law, but more of that in a moment. Here we go. Let me read to you verses 15 through 22. Rejoice in the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and lay hold of it so that you can know how to use this for yourself or for others that you may encounter that use similar arguments of wanting to refer to a written constitution. Right. Then went the Pharisees, Matthew twenty-two fifteen, and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, men loyal to Herod, saying, look at, watch this subtlety. Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. What flattery about that he would say whatever was true and he wouldn't regard the audience, whether it was Herodians there or Herod was in power in Jerusalem or not. Notice the flattery. Verse 17, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? 
But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. But enough hung around that he came back to the Pharisees later as we get to the end of this chapter. What flattery. When you tell a man, we know that you're not afraid of anyone. We know that you only speak the truth. We know that the truth is the most important thing to you. Now tell us, is this tribute to Caesar, do we owe taxes to Caesar by law? Is it a constitutional obligation for us to pay taxes to Caesar? What would have happened, depending on his answer? If he would have said, no, that imposter, pagan, occupying oppressor from across the Mediterranean Sea, we don't owe him anything. We're God's chosen people, and we're supposed to destroy all the Gentiles. How would that have gone over? The Herodians were there to report him to Herod. What if he said, I like Herod. I appreciate the Roman government. We ought to submit to them and pay for the safety that we have now on our roads and streets because their soldiers are occupying our nation. The Pharisees would have reported them to the other Pharisees who were nationalists, and they would have had a pro- he would have had a problem with them because they would have been defending their independence as a nation under God. What did he do? He cut off both arguments. When they said, is it lawful? He did not say, show me the law. He did not say, quote me the law. Those discussions have no end. Do you know why we do not engage in manuscript or textual arguments for the King James Bible? Because the arguments never end. You get yourself involved in a conflict that you can't end really to anyone's satisfaction except the prejudice of the two parties involved. So we defend our King James Bible by the four F's. Remember? Faith in his promises, the fruit of his word, the facts of the internal integrity of the King James Bible, and the fools that want to argue against it, and we have a whole lot more to say about it than just those short words. But this is a similar place. Instead of engaging in a debate that doesn't have an end, Jesus just cut it off with a chainsaw at the, at the knees and rendered it worthless. He said, show me your money. Showing by money that the monetary authority that was able to print money and have it circulate in that nation, and that has a whole lot of ramifications in itself, when you can supply money to a nation and they circulate it. Who gets the benefit of the initial purchase? Just... just There's so many things to think about, but we're not going to deal with all those. They've been dealt with. They're in a document on our website entitled The Christian and Taxes. And there, this passage is dealt with longer than I'm going to take on it right now, though the introduction certainly has become long. When the question was asked, is it lawful? He didn't say, quote me the law. He didn't say, show me the law. He didn't say, show me the Constitution. The question was, is it constitutional for us to pay tribute to Caesar? Their constitution was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law of God. 
The law of God did not say to pay tribute to Caesar. The law of God was for them to have an independent nation and for them to always be the head and make other nations the tail. And it would only be God's judgment that would ever bring tribute upon the nation, in, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so Jesus cut the issue off by saying, show me your money. And this is recorded in three Gospels. Show me your money. I don't care what the Constitution says. The, the matters of legality are irrelevant. Show me your money. And when they showed him their money, it had a picture of Caesar on it and an inscription saying that it was the emperor of Rome. And so they were obligated by circulating the monetary authority of a foreign power to pay taxes for that foreign power. So Jesus cut through all this tic-tac, nitpicking, back and forth, arguments about the law. The law was the constitution of the Old Testament of Moses. But it didn't matter anymore. Just like last night when you read Jeremiah 27, it didn't matter anymore. Because the de facto power that was now over Judah was Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah was the one declaring, we've had a de facto change in government. It's no longer a Mosaic government regulated by the first five books of the Bible. This nation has sinned. God's brought another force upon it, another government, another authority over it, and that's Babylon. You, you read that last night in Jeremiah 27. It was very clear that Jeremiah, for God, told Judah and its king and the other kings of the nations around Judah, submit and you'll live. Fight, you're all going to die. This is my servant. This is a new government, and he's my servant. Now we would think, no, Moses was your servant. Moses was his servant until they disobeyed to no longer deserve Moses. Then God brought Nebuchadnezzar, who was his servant. And so we look at the de facto. Here's what the words de jure, de jure means in Latin, of law, by law, in writing, the constitutional basis for a government. What's been written down as to how it will operate. A de facto government is one that doesn't operate by the Constitution, doesn't operate in writing. It operates by assumed force by being what is actually in power and is the reality of the issue. And the reality was Rome had taken over Judah and was circulating its coins. And they owed that part of their revenue, assets, or whatever back to Caesar. This is the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Matthew, when Matthew continues here recording the Sadducees coming up with a woman that was married by seven brothers, remember? Yeah. Now that could get complicated if you dealt with it. But Jesus just cut it off and said, there is no marriage in heaven. Next. Since you can't think of a next, I have the next. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham when Abraham was long dead. God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, Abraham was alive when God said to Moses several hundred years later, I am the God of Abraham. Does that bother you? It bothered them a lot because they knew that Abraham had to be existing in some form because the Sadducees denied angels and they denied the human spirit. Right. And for God... And he, do you understand? He, the Lord's just taking them apart. Right. And so he takes them apart this way. Show me your money. Who's the monetary authority of your nation? Rome is. 
then give him what he wants. There's obviously a new government, and it's not the Constitution, and it's not the law, and it's not in writing. It's in the boots on your streets. De jure means in writing. De facto means what is really in place. It's the difference between law or rule in writing or law or rule in actual reality. When we say, as a matter of fact, that's de facto. We intend what is actually happening then. As a matter of fact, what is factually, actually, realistic, real, real right now. Some proclaim that the U.S. Constitution is their king and so rebel against rulers. They want to rebel against the IRS. And listen, there is a fantastic Wikipedia entry called Constitutional Arguments Against the Income Tax. It is very long, very summarized, very well written, very thorough. And anyone that has any memories from the past will enjoy reading through the dozens and dozens and dozens of arguments that have been used by patriots to try to get out of the income tax of the United States. However... Jesus would not engage in that. He wouldn't look at the Wikipedia entry. He would say, show me your money. And when the money is pulled forth, it is labeled a Federal Reserve note, which by all opponents of the income tax, they're equal opponents of our Federal Reserve system. They both came into being in the same year, 1913. And so they argue against both as being unconstitutional since the Constitution says in Article 1, Section 10, that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin tender in payment of debt, that these things are wrong. If you get an old Federal Reserve note from 1962 or earlier, it says on its face that it is redeemable and lawful money, which means that it is not lawful money. And the only reason I'm going through this is because when Jesus said, show me your money, he gave us a powerful argument to use ourselves. Right. Show me your money to cut off all the wrangling that is entirely unnecessary and unprofitable. You've never met a person that understood the Constitution, and you won't. Right. It is far too complicated with all the cases that have been written since it was designed to, written 250 years ago or however long it's been now. It's a hopeless case. And all the tax, all the legal movements and all the court cases have proven it to be de facto law. The IRS is established, and it doesn't matter which of those dozens of arguments you use to try to show the IRS is being illegal or the Federal Reserve System is being illegal. It's been proven to be legal, in fact, by the government that now exists. Otherwise, you could be like Paul. And here's where we draw the line. You say, but Paul appealed to the law. Yes, he did. When the law was perfectly understood and the written law equaled the de facto law. When Paul said, is it lawful? What law was he appealing to? The law of Moses out of Deuteronomy or the law of Rome? Law of Rome. Is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen uncondemned, not having a fair trial? Remember? They, they go get the centurion. The centurion comes in and says, listen, I bought my citizenship with a great price. Paul said, but I was freeborn. I didn't have to pay anything for mine. And see, it was, it was settled immediately because it was understood that that was law in force. That was law de facto, even though it was Philippi where it took place that wasn't Italy, but it was under the influence of Rome. When Paul was in Caesarea... And he's before King Agrippa. 
And the Jews are over here testifying against him and begging Agrippa to send him to Jerusalem to be tried according to their law. They said, what did Paul do? He said, I appeal to Caesar. He didn't say, I appeal to God. I appeal to the Old Testament for you Jews to have mercy on me. I appeal to the resurrected Lord. He didn't do any of that. He said, I appeal to Caesar. As soon as he did that, that law was perfectly understood so that he could not revoke it. Agrippa and Festus went aside and Agrippa said, this man hasn't done anything worthy of bonds. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could be released. But the the legal process had already started immediately. There was no question. You didn't have to go to court. You didn't have to wrangle. And so when we are faced with a situation, if it's established, accepted, practice law, we will use the law. We will appeal to Caesar. We will appeal to citizenship. But when there is something like the IRS that has been collecting taxes rather efficiently since 1913 in different ways, shapes, and forms, and with an IRS code that governs how they do it, whether it's corporate, small business, or individuals, we submit to it. And we do so because of this kind of an argument. That there's a de facto government. It doesn't matter if you prove the IRS to be unconstitutional. It's in fact the revenue agent of the United States of America. And you're bound to it. And so we trust the Lord this way. And I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for him showing us the four F's. I I have an email in my inbox right now that has to be dealt with in the next 48 hours asking me for charts and graphs about the manuscript flow out of Antioch versus Alexandria, Egypt. Antioch of Syria, Paul's home church, and Alexandria of Egypt because they want manuscript evidence for the King James Bible. We have a black book back in our library here, and it's entitled... Which version is the Bible? Or something like that written by Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones. And that's the, that's the source document we use to deal with manuscript evidence because we want to deal with the Bible evidence on how the Bible tells us to measure Bible versions. Right. And so we go to faith and fruit and facts and fools from the pages of Scripture instead of going down that path because that path is so long, so wide, so complex and so difficult to ever prove your point, you can't prove it to a person that doesn't want to believe it. We just want to lay before them the spiritual truth of what God has said in his word about his word. And that's where we stand, and we're different that way. And this is where we stand on this issue. We don't get involved with the U.S. Constitution Party. We don't memorize the Constitution. We don't try to argue the Constitution. We just look around. I think the monetary authority in the U.S. is the Federal Reserve System. I, I do think that it is. I think that every one of these tax rebels that believes the IRS and the Federal Reserve are unconstitutional carry those pieces of paper saying that they are loyal to the Federal Reserve in their pockets. That's how they transact business. And they are very quick to cash their Social Security checks at the end of their lives. Let's never be hypocrites like that. Let's just do it God's way. Show me the money. And when we see the money... It's Federal Reserve. I thought that was a 1913 invention. I mean, according to you, it's owned by the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. And they own all the U.S. debt, according to you. 
That's serious business. Why are you carrying it in your pocket? Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing us I am the God of Abraham. Here in the same chapter, thank you for showing us if David called him Lord, how is he then his son? Begotten of him, but begotten to be his Lord and Savior. They left him alone after this. Caesar was the real ruler of Israel by virtue of his monetary authority and the taxing power that he had. In fact, that he had army in the streets. America's had a de facto government. When do you want to say that we got our de facto government? Was it Abraham Lincoln financing an unpopular war with greenbacks? Or was it Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 when he told American citizens they couldn't own gold? What? We don't care. It doesn't matter when. It's just things have changed, and so we submit in the way that we're taught here. And this is such a neater, cleaner, scriptural, Christ-like, Christian way of dealing with it instead of trying to deal outside the Bible and deal with Constitution that's been overthrown. It doesn't matter. I swear to uphold and defend the Constitution. They've been saying that right along for decades and generations. That is their job that they're not keeping. Our job is to submit to the authority that's in power. And so Jesus taught us how to do that. Show me your money. It's a great answer. Your only scriptural right to legal recourse is when it is fully accepted by rulers. Then you can take them to court and get an answer. For instance, remember, I just lost his name because it's so unimportant to me, but uh, the guy in California, Jarvis, what was his name? Back in California? You know, had a petition drive, got Californians to vote against the property tax or certain state income tax that they had. And when you can generate authority like that, and you can do it the legal way, that's totally different from doing it any other way of rebellion. Thank you, Lord. Remember last night when you read Jeremiah 27, there was a new, gover- there was a new government. There was a new governor. He was God's servant. He, wa- he didn't come according to the first five books of the Bible. He wasn't related to Moses. He wasn't a son of Moses. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. In fact, he wasn't from any tribe of Israel at all. He was a Babylonian pagan. He was a Chaldean. He was Nebuchadnezzar. But he was God's servant, and he had absolute dominion and authority, not only over God's nation, but over the nations around it. And those nations that would submit to that revelation from Jeremiah would survive, and the nations that wouldn't would be destroyed. We learned that last night. Okay, number 46. Transfer of wealth occurs. Four words. Transfer of wealth occurs. Number 46. Transfer of wealth occurs. Proverbs 13. I'm going to read a few verses to you about the transfer of wealth that the Bible teaches. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. In Proverbs 13, 22. Then we've got Proverbs 28 and verse 8. He that by usury and unjust gain increaseth his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. There's a transfer of wealth taught in the Bible. This is one of God's general rules of how he judges men. Recall what the Israelites did to the Egyptians when they left Egypt. Moses had told them in advance, because God had told him to tell them, and Moses told them when it was time to leave that night, go borrow from your neighbors. The word borrow is used. There was no intent to repay. 
go borrow from your neighbors. And God said, I will so move upon them that they will press their assets into your hands and pay you to get out of their nation. I will have made it so bad that there will be a massive transfer of wealth. And so there was. And it's described in Exodus chapter 12. God also gave Israel the cities, the walls, the infrastructure, the wells, the vineyards, and the furniture in the houses of the seven nations of Canaan. And the Israelites moved right on in and took over all of it. There was a great transfer of wealth. And when we look in the Word of God, it's taught in the pages of Scripture. Joshua exhorted the people in Numbers chapter 14, when the, when the, the 12 spies were standing in front of the nation, Numbers chapter 14, and the 10 spies said, there's giants there, we won't be able to take it. Caleb and Joshua said, we can take it easily. And this is what they said, Numbers 14, 9. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. For they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. They're our bread. Let's go eat them up. When God arranges a transfer of wealth. Tax policies transfer wealth from aborting pagans to Christians with children that contribute to their church in America. It's been laid out easily for you to see in tables in the document, God Bless the IRS, that is on our website. If you have children and you get to deduct them from your income and the deduction that is allowed for them from your income, you pay less taxes than a pagan couple in the same condition that aborts their children instead of giving birth to them. You pay less in taxes. Now, if they don't believe in marriage either, there has been further taxation upon them for not being married, like the Christian couple would be married. Then the Christian couple gives some of his income to his church, to the Lord. He further reduces his income so that he pays less in taxes than the pagan who's not married, aborts his children, and doesn't go to church. There's a transfer of wealth by those that cannot see what they're doing, some of whom did know what they were doing. The man in that church that is the pastor gets what is called the parsonage allowance. There is no contesting of the issue. It's fully accepted by the IRS called the parsonage allowance, allowing a pastor to deduct his mortgage interest twice. And it's understood to be deducted twice. Once, where you would deduct your mortgage interest. Second, in his parsonage allowance. How did that happen in our country? Because God arranged to protect, and it's going to come up with the next point, number 47, if you want to get ahead, is nursing fathers and mothers. God's arranged for kings and revenue agents, revenue organizations like the IRS, to benefit his people. So number 47 is nursing fathers and mothers. Number 46 was transfer of wealth occurs. There's there's many things that could be said about that. I've given you the proof of it from the Old Testament. And when we look at our own tax code, God is still doing similar things right now. And we thank him for that. 
That, that brings us to number 47, nursing fathers and mothers. This phrase is out of Isaiah chapter 49 and the conversion of Gentile kings and how they would bless the church of God. These kings don't need to be sincere themselves to be nursing fathers and mothers. They just need to help us. And they helped. There were pharaohs that helped in Egypt. They weren't necessarily believers. There's not a word said that Pharaoh was a believer that gave Joseph and his family the best land of Egypt for flocks, which was the delta of the Nile called Goshen. They didn't like being shepherds. So they gave their best property to the Jews who multiplied there so prolifically that it was a later Pharaoh that realized if we let them keep multiplying, they're going to outnumber us shortly. I think we've heard that recently. We'll trust the Lord on that matter, if you know where I just went and came back. But the Lord took care of them. There was nursing fathers and mothers. Nebuchadnezzar was one. Nebuchadnezzar took care of Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar took care of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar took care of his three friends. Darius, the Persian, Cyrus, the Persian, and other Persians protected the Old Testament church. Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus, Darius. Sometimes three names for one man, Darius the Great. Alexander and other Grecian princes also gave privileges to the Jewish church. Rome, under Emperor Constantine and other kings, showed mercy to Christians in general. Christian monarchs like King James I of England, the sixth of Scotland, gave us our Bible. Using pagan governments is not a lack of faith, nor is it a transfer of our sovereignty from Christ to them, It is the fact that Christ is sovereign over them that he gets them to do things like that for the benefit of his church. Using pagan governments is real faith, for it shows God's sovereignty over them. Paul appealed to Caesar. He didn't appeal to God. He didn't appeal to Christ. He used the civil means at hand of nursing fathers and nursing mothers. Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship. He could have taken a beating for Jesus. Why didn't he take a beating for Jesus? Because he did many other times. But why didn't he then? Because he had available law at his disposal that was completely understood by both parties, including the one holding the scourge. Just like those that reject insurance because they claim they have greater faith, these reject using Caesar. But we use Caesar. We are thankful for the tax benefits that were given. And we are thankful for the freedom of religion. Do you appreciate the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States? It is the first of the Bill of Rights. More on it later. You should be thankful for it, but do you know what it means? It means that we, as Baptists, who will always be in a minority, Bible-following, Bible-Christian Baptists will always be a minority. Therefore, we want to support freedom of religion, which means we have to support freedom of Islam in America. That doesn't mean freedom of terrorists in America. It means freedom of religion. Our Baptist forefathers, especially out of the state of Virginia, fought long and hard for that First Amendment to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, because they knew that they were always going to be a minority. There had never been a state. I want to be very... Maybe one, but there had never been a state where the state church was the Baptist church. But were there state churches in Puritan New England that were congregational? What was the state church of South Carolina? The Church of England. More tolerant 
than the Congregational Church of Maine, where William Screven brought his 28 members down to Charlestown to form the First Baptist Church in the South. But we believe in the freedom of religion, which means we have to protect the freedom of others' religions as well so that we Baptists can have freedom. But it's how there are nursing fathers and nursing mothers. When a government has a state church, they are no longer our nursing father and nursing mother. You then pay the tithes of the Church of England. You are taxed to build their church buildings. You are taxed in South Carolina 200 years ago to pay their ministers. We don't have anything like that. And that is what separation of church and state means, that there won't be a state church. It doesn't mean that the government won't be believers. It just means they won't force a church on us. We should be thankful for those Baptist fathers of ours that influenced that Bill of Rights to get us freedom of religion that trickles down even to us, likely one of the smallest sects. Number 48, tokens to confirm rulers. Tokens to confirm rulers. God may send tests as tokens to confirm and establish rulers over their subjects. And David said that God had done that for him. Number 48 is tokens to confirm rulers. Remember Solomon's solution for the baby that was brought to him early in his reign, described for us in 1 Kings chapter 3, when those two harlots sleeping together rolled over during the night, killed one of the babies, one was alive, both mothers claimed it. Here's the baby before Solomon, two women wanting that baby. Solomon says, bring me a sword. All of a sudden, real mommy shows up. Give her the baby. Because real mommy doesn't want baby cut in half. And it's just beautiful wisdom. And the Bible tells us that Solomon was, he was young. Solomon was young, and he had some decent shoes to follow. And those shoes were David. But God took care of that with an event like that and established Solomon in majesty that hadn't been seen and wisdom that hadn't been seen in Israel before. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Can you think of someone else in the Bible that had a hard act to follow? It was Joshua. Do you know what it would have been like to have been Joshua and have to follow Moses and his 40 years in office? What didn't Moses do in his 40 years in office? Did he lead them through the Red Sea? Did he bring plagues down upon Pharaoh? Did he provide bread from heaven? Quail? Water out of rocks? Mount Sinai dancing on fire? Just think of all that, and here comes Joshua. There's a whole lot of verses I could turn you to, but let me give you Joshua 3.7 as an example. First of all, God appeared to Joshua and said, I know what's coming, and I know that it's going to be hard, but be, be of good courage. Be of good courage. Don't be afraid. I'll bless you and prosper you. Joshua chapter 3, you don't have to turn unless you, need, you, know, unless you can get there quickly. I'll read it to you. The Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. God does things like that, and we we should thank him for those things. And as we prayed a few weeks ago, we should pray that God would so establish and confirm our new president in the eyes not only of the nation, but of the whole world. That he's a great ruler as he did for Joshua here. Now, what did Joshua get to do? Joshua got to walk to the edge of the Jordan River and smack it, and it divided. 
And Joshua got to go in and take the land of Canaan, and the walls of Jericho fell flat at Joshua marching around them. The Lord confirmed Joshua. We're learning about government. God is the governor of the nations. We read from Psalm 22. The Bible is filled with information for us to know how governments work. And nations ascend and nations descend. Kings are promoted. Kings are demoted. Tokens to confirm rulers. It's a matter that we can pray for. David's first appearance in front of the army. What was the arrangement by God? His first appearance in front of the army. Now, he had been in Saul's court. Goliath is there. Had he already spun his tail for a number of days and no one from Israel had done anything? Was the stage set absolutely perfectly? And David said, is there not a cause? I'll go take care of him. And he did go take care of him. But what, what an establishment of David's authority. The songs in Israel immediately became... Saul hath slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. As the young lad walked around with an oversized sword and an oversized head, one in his left hand and one in his right, the Lord confirmed him. Number 49, mercy to civil rulers. Mercy to civil rulers. Instead of cursing or complaining, consider their mandate, their training, and their duties. Let's have mercy to civil rulers. It's hard being a husband sometimes. It's hard being a manager sometimes. It's hard being a father sometimes. It's hard being a pastor. It's hard being a president. He's got far more responsibility than the four other offices I just mentioned added together and squared. Let's be merciful to him. I know I've written you some things recently that I hope have been helpful. Many have written and said they were helpful. To think about our present president's training, his home life, his life in Indonesia as a Muslim, his life at Harvard Law, his life as a church member of Jeremiah Wright's pastorate in Chicago. You start at his mother's PhD. You start adding these things up, and that man was faithful, passionate, and and followed through on how he was taught And the constituency that put him in office expected him to conduct himself. It's a whole different way of looking at him. Remember, I have to look at him every day because a brother in this church put him in my my prayer chair. A nice big framed picture of him. And so we have little chats now and then. And I have chats with the Lord, and I mean that with all due reverence, that he was better than we deserved. That he's better than Nebuchadnezzar raping our women and raising our cities and destroying our church. Let's have mercy to civil rulers. President Obama represented his constituency well in his actions. We could hope, we might hope, that when in office, he should have wanted to represent all of us, and so he would have conducted himself like David when there have been problems in our nation of certain kinds. But no, he was reflecting what he'd been taught his whole life, and he was reflecting what the party that put him in office stood for. We can't expect him to be like David when it was Philistines that put him into office. Does that make better sense? A broken home, a Muslim father, a Harvard education hardly prepares a man. Furthermore, as our president, the most powerful man on earth, he has appalling duties. Do you know what he's briefed with every day? Do you know what he's got to think about every day? 
Do you know how many elected officials are, that are Democrats want him doing things a certain way in order to make it easier for them to get reelected? It just goes on and on and on. The lobbyists that are lined up, the public opinion polls that are lined up, all the people that are around him, the psychophants that want to take advantage of his reign, his family, he's got to go home and face his wife when he takes a position. Do you understand? It's, a, it's enormous. There's other nations that are calling. The phone rings, and it's not your buddy in the church. The phone rings, or a text comes in, and it's from Merck. It's from the leader of Germany or England. It's tremendous. You know, the larger a company gets, and there's more levels of management in a company, and we realize that company CEO has to report to the board of directors, and the board of directors have to report to the shareholders, so there's chains of authority going up, then there's chains of authority coming down, and the more and the bigger that gets, and, the, and when you're publicly traded, and there's analysts, there's 10, there's 20, there's 200 analysts following your company that every single decision you make is going to get written up and supplied to the people that provide the capital to keep your company operating. All the pressures we can see, we can look at, if you know anything about business, you can see the, the, the power going up that's, that's coming down on that CEO, and then underneath him, all the management underneath him, all the jobs that are there, the, the, the temptations and the difficulties of market pressures and economic pressures and marketing changes and product obsolesc obsolete, obsolescence. There's so many different pressures, and we give them honor, and we should give them honor. But think about the president. He deals with classified information and opposing influences above us. Look at Proverbs 25.3, and the Lord arranged this to pop out in the last two weeks. I did not, because there's 915 Proverbs, and they are generated by random each day out of the chapter for that day. But up came Proverbs 25 and verse 3 a few days ago. The heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. We can't know everything there is up there and we can't know everything there is down there under the ground. And that is a comparison for the heart of kings. They know things that we don't know. Can you give... I, I have taught faithfully your children that they do not know what is going through your mind when you make a decision for them for schooling. Your decision might be public schools. Your decision might be private school. It might be Christian school. It might be homeschool. You, you children do not know all that goes through your parents' minds that they discuss in their bed, in their bedroom, in their private times together. I hope I've taught all spheres of authority consistently and fairly. But right now, we should look at this verse and realize that our present president, who's been there for eight years and has grayed and aged considerably, has had a great deal to deal with for those eight years, right. including us and people like us that are noisier than us. Mercy to civil rulers. What a text. The heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. Children, when your dads make decisions, your dad made a decision that you were going to go on vacation and you were going to go to such and such a place at such and such a time, but then he had to change his mind. Do you know why he changed his mind? Because he just wanted to be mean to you. No, something came up that was big. He wrestled with it. He talked with your mother about it. It tore him up. We, you know, we, you want me to tell your children that, but brethren... I want someone to tell me that about the man in my prayer chair. And so I have chats every day. 
thank you, brother. Your smile is larger than it should be. <laughs> Lord, help us. God harshly condemns those that criticize what they do not know. 2 Peter 2, 10 through 12, Jude 1, 8 through 10. God harshly criticizes those that do not know what government is really involved in and what they have to do on a daily basis. It's above them. We're like beasts when we complain about what goes on because there's choices being made. We can see right and wrong. Of course we can. John the Baptist could see it about Herod marrying his, his uh, brother's wife. But that was John the Baptist. When you have a ministry like John the Baptist or I have one like John the Baptist, we'll preach like John the Baptist. And if I were to get an email asking me my opinion on certain things, I would give it. Herod wanted to hear John the Baptist. You know, what's, your, what's the biggest decision you're going to make the rest of this day? To drink regular or diet Coke? Is that the biggest decision that's coming down the pipe before you get to rest your head on your pillow tonight? Or is it where to eat lunch? I'm talking, to, I'm talking to me as much as I am to you. I want to learn to submit to God's word like this. The heaven for height. We can't see everything that's up there. The earth for depth. We, we don't know what's under our feet. And so the heart of kings. And we're not talking about some little nation like Israel. We're talking about the United States of America that has external threats. Down, up, pressures from every side. Lord, help us to honor your authority for children to honor parents, wives to honor husbands. Wives, your husband makes decisions sometime that you may not understand. He, he has weighed things and decided the best in his judgment of what he ought to do at that time. Trust him. Have mercy toward him. Honor him. Appreciate him having to make those decisions instead of arguing against them. And let's be like that in civil government. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.